All right, you take your Bibles and turn along with me to Colossians chapter 3. How is the Christian supposed to defeat sin and grow in Christ's likeness? How are we to grow as Christians? Is saying no to sin and yes to righteousness just a matter of sheer willpower? Are we as Christians supposed to simply obey because God said so and grit it out? Yes. (laughs) In part. And grit it out and, 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 and try to do our best. Well, our scripture this morning will help us to better understand God's plan for us in defeating sin and growing in Christ's likeness. We are not left to our own sheer willpower in defeating sin and growing in Christ's likeness. Not by a long shot. So let me read for us Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 11. We're going to focus this morning on verses 5 through 11, but verses 1 through 11 are important to uh, establish the context as well. So let's, let's read together. Therefore, Paul says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free men, but Christ is all and in all. All. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we find the keys to battling sin and growing in Christ's likeness. We find your great and precious promises which serve as the, the foothold in the spiritual battle. 
We find our new identity in Christ, that our life is hidden with Christ in God and that we are dead. Our former way of living is dead. Our former motivations, our former desires have died and we've been given new life in Christ. So teach us from your word this morning, Lord, how to grow as Christians, how to be who we are, how to live out the truth of what you've already done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In thinking about this passage and how we as Christians can defeat sin and grow in Christ's likeness, I want us to think about and better understand the importance of the indicative and the imperative in the New Testament. All right? The importance of the indicative and the imperative in the New Testament. You say, well, those sound like fancy words. I'm not sure what it all means. What are the indicative and the imperative as it relates to the New Testament? Well, the indicative and the imperative are both verbal moods in Greek. Now, just stick with me here a minute, okay? I know I'm, I'm already doing a deep dive on you, and I may have lost some of you already, but stick with me because it, the payoff is great, I believe. And this is crucial to our understanding of how we grow as Christians. The indicative and the imperative are both verbal moods in Greek. The indicative mood is a statement of fact. The indicative is often used to describe what God has already done for us. It indicates what God has already done and who we already are because of what he's done. The indicative is often used to state our new position and privileges and power as Christians. Let me give you an example. Hold your place here in Colossians and go back with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want to show you an example of the indicative. Stating what God has already done for us. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's the indicative. We died to sin. That's the indicative. It's already happened. It's already a fact. It's already established. We who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? That's the indicative. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus and we've been baptized into his death. This is what's already happened. It's what's already occurred. The indicatives in these verses teach us that we have died to sin 
and that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus and that this baptism is a baptism, an immersion into Jesus' death. So the indicatives of Scripture are often teaching us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The indicatives make clear our new position in Christ and our privileges in Christ and our newfound power in Christ. The indicative helps us to understand our new identity in Christ. All right, so that's the indicatives of Scripture. Let's look at the imperatives of Scripture. All right, stick, stick with me. Imperatives are commands. Commands. While the indicative tells us who we are in Christ, the imperatives instruct us how we are now to live out of this new identity in Christ. Let's look again at Romans 6. So we saw the indicatives in Romans 6, 1 through 3. Let's look at some of the imperatives in verses 12 and 13. And by the way, Romans 6, 1 through 11 are chock full of indicatives. What God has already done for us. Our new position in Christ. Our new identity in Christ. Our newfound power in Christ. All right? Romans 6, 1 through 11 is chock full of indicatives. And then with verse 12 come the imperatives. Look at Romans 6, 12. Therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Notice the therefore in verse 12. It signals a change from the indicative, what God has already done for us, to the imperative, what God now expects from us and wants from us and commands of us. In essence, Paul is in issuing the indicatives and imperatives saying, Christian, be who you are. Be who you are. Christian, live out this new position, this new identity, and this new power that Christ has given you. Live in light of it. Live out of the resources that God has provided for you. In this new reality. The book of Ephesians illustrates the relationship of the indicative to the imperative very clearly. Ephesians has six chapters. The first three chapters are filled with indicatives. What God has done for us and who we now are now in Christ. Statements of our new position in him. The last three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, are filled with imperatives. What we are to do now and how we are to live in light of what we are in Christ. And the hinge point between the indicatives and the imperatives comes right in the middle, right where you'd expect it to be at chapter 4 and verse 1. Ephesians 4, 1 says this, Therefore, 
In light of what God has done, in light of who you are, in light of your new identity, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In that verse, our calling, our calling summarizes the indicative, and our walking in a manner worthy summarizes the imperative. Do you follow? The distinction between the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture are similar to the distinction between the categories of law and gospel. Do you remember we studied that back in February together? Took one Sunday and just did a bit of a deep dive on the law and gospel and the distinctions between them and their relationship to each other. Gospel is what God has already done for us in Christ. And law is what God demands from us. So gospel aligns closely with the indicative. And imperative aligns closely with the law or the commands of scripture. Now it is vital that we understand the relationship of the indicative to the imperative. The indicative always always, always, logically precedes the imperative. Imperatives are always founded upon, built upon, the foundation of the indicatives. The imperative is always dependent on the certainty of the indicative. New Testament scholar Herman Ritterboss states that it is immediately clear that the imperative rests on the indicative and that this order is not reversible. You never build the indicative on the imperative. You always build the imperative off of the indicative. We always Obey out of what God has already done for us. What he has already provided for us. Who he has already made us to be. Why does this matter? Why is this important? It's important and it matters because the indicative provides the basis, the reasoning, the encouragements, the motivation. For our pursuing obedience in the imperatives. When we fail to rightly take into account our new position in Christ and what God has already done for us, we rob ourselves of the reason, the encouragement, and the motivation for our obedience. And we set ourselves up for failure. Because we are not relying on what God has already done for us, what God has provided for us, for the power that is operative in us. We are relying on our own strength to grit it out, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which can't be done. God is so kind and gracious to us that he provides us with these indicatives before issuing any imperatives. As a parent, I've sometimes not been very helpful when giving my kids imperatives, commands. 
I'll tell them to do something and they might sometimes say, but why? Too often my answer has been what I suspect has been your answer sometimes, because I said so. Now, while that that is true, and there's truth to that appeal to authority, intrinsic authority, and while our children should obey simply because we are their parents and their God-designed authority in the home, it would be more helpful of us to patiently explain why they should obey and how they can obey and helps to their obedience And you know what? This is precisely what God has done for us in the indicatives of Scripture. God has shared with us why we should obey, how we can obey. He's shared with us our new position and identity and our new found power in Christ that makes obedience to the imperatives of Scripture possible. Now, our spiritual enemy is at work. He's prowling around, right? Like a lion seeking someone to devour. He's active. And he wants us to think that we're defeated before the spiritual fight ever even begins. That we are powerless to resist temptation. That we are slaves to sin, led around by the nose. That is why the indicatives play such an important role in the spiritual battle. That is why Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God in Ephesians. You remember that? Ephesians 6, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he talks about having your loins girded with truth and the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the gospel of peace, and taking up the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation, and wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This spiritual armor that Paul describes there as a metaphor of our spiritual resources is really the armor of the indicatives. The indicatives give us a spiritual beachhead, a spiritual footing, and all the necessary spiritual resources to win the spiritual battle, to defeat sin, and to grow in Christ-likeness. The New Testament scriptures never call us to obedience without first reminding us of our new position and power in Jesus Christ. What, What Jesus always calls us to, he always equips us for. We're not called to simply exercise raw willpower in the fight against sin. Rather, we are to believe and reflect deeply upon our new position, identity, and power in Christ, and then to live out of this new position, identity, and power. So that all was the introduction and the backdrop to our text this morning, okay? Let's look at how this plays out in our text this morning. So I want us to see this morning two keys for defeating sin and growing in Christ-likeness. And really, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 are a unit. 
They go together. We divided them up. I wanted to give verses 1 through 4 their own message, and I think rightly so, but they really do go together, and that's why I read them together this morning, and that's why we're going to consider the indicatives that are mentioned in uh, verses 1 through 4. So I want us to survey... Some of the indicatives that are already have already been presented and seen by us in the book of Colossians. To survey these indicatives is to survey what God has already done for us, our new position in Christ. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he... Colossians 1.13, for he, that is God, rescued us. That's the indicative. It's what God's already done. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us. What do you think that is? Indicative. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we've been rescued and transferred. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. He has now reconciled you. You were formerly alienated, but he has now reconciled you. That is the indicative. That is what God has already done for us. We have gone from being alienated to being reconciled. That's the gospel. It's what he's done. It's his promise to us that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Colossians 2.10. In him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And here's the indicative, verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision, not made with hands, so a spiritual circumcision, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. That's the indicative. He made you alive. You were dead. He made you alive. He circumcised you. He marked you out as his. And he made you alive, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He made us alive together with Christ. Colossians 2.19. Paul's writing about those who are not holding fast to the head, those false teachers, not holding fast to Christ, for whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. That's the indicative. God is supplying the growth. He's supplying the power. He's making it happen behind the scenes. 
Colossians 2.20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of of the world, that's the indicative. That's what's already happened. We are dead to the world, as it were. Died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Now, all of this brings us to chapter 3, all right? And that's where we are today. Colossians 3, look at verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that's the indicative, that's our position, that's our new identity, we are united spiritually with Christ and raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Aha, there's the imperative. Do you see the indicative? Put right next to the imperative. You have been raised up with Christ. Since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Since this is your new position, since you have new life in Christ, since you've been transferred and reconciled, since all of this is true, keep seeking the things above. Look at Colossians 3 2. Set your mind on things above. That's the imperative. Not on things that are on the earth. Why? The reason why? Indicative. Verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's the indicative. This is what God has promised to do and will do for us in the future. So up to this point in our text, we have a strong emphasis on the indicative, on what God has done for us in Christ, on our new position in Christ. And that serves as the basis for the commands that come beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3. The imperative. Imperative is always built on top of the indicative. So that brings us to point number two. Not only are we to understand our new identity in Christ, we are to live out our new identity in Christ. On the basis of what God has done for us in Christ, here is how we're to live out this identity in Christ. Look at verse 5. Therefore, therefore, based on all that I've said, based on your new position in Christ, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Paul says they're to consider the members of their earthly body as dead. More literally, it says that we are to put to death our members that are on the earth. But I think the New American Standard here comes closer to Paul's meaning, which is similar to what Paul said in Romans 6, 6. He says there, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Romans 6, 11, he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Very similar to what he says here. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body 
to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Colossians 3, Paul has just reminded us of our spiritual union with Christ in his death. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died with Christ. You're spiritually united with Christ in his death. You have died. The old you is gone. And your life now, your new life, the new you is hidden with Christ in God. It's a dramatically new day for you. The moment you were saved, the moment you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sin and eternal life, you became a new you. Whether you felt it or realized it, whether you understood the full significance of that, that is what happened. And along with this new identity came new resources flooding into your life. Divine resources. Divine power. Your old relationship to sin was broken. You were formerly a slave to sin. But now you have died with Christ. And with that death has come a death to sin. The old relationship to sin has been done away with. You no longer have to obey sin as a master. You're no longer a slave. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the indicative. This is the indicative that makes possible the imperative of verse 5. Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sin. Consider, reckon it to be so that you are dead to sin, no longer a slave. Sin no longer has mastery over you. You have now been empowered to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. To use your body, your life, your energies, your efforts, no longer in service to sin, but now in service to God who made you. And Paul gives a list of sins here that we are to consider ourselves as dead to. Immorality. That's the Greek word porneia. It's a general term for all kinds of sexual immorality. It refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, which is God's design. We might use the term fornication. The next sin in the list is translated as impurity, sexual impurity. Passion is next, sexual passion. Sexual desire for that which is outside of God's design within marriage. Next is evil desire, evil longings. These all are overlapping terms. Passion and evil desire are very similar and we could summarize them under the term lust. And then Paul ends the list with greed, which at first might seem out of place. But greed is at the heart of all sexual immorality. 
For at its root, all sexual immorality is a lack of contentment in God's good plan for our sexual purity. The 10th commandment says that you shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife. Coveting your neighbor's wife. Coveting is an expression of greed. We tend to think of greed for money, but we can be greedy for another's body or for an experience. And then, Paul says the real root of this sexual greed is actually idolatry, which is the root of every sin. In sexual greed, we worship and serve the creature over the creator. We ignore God's clear commands and seek to satisfy our sexual desires outside of marriage and his plan. Paul gives further reason for us to consider ourselves dead to sin in verses 6 and 7. For, he says in verse 6, for it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. It should come as no surprise that the reason is given in the form of indicatives. The reason you should obey is because this is the reality. Because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And then he says, and in them you also once walked. That's also in the indicative. You, you used to live this way too. But everything's changed for you. You're no longer walking and living in accord with these things. So two reasons to consider yourself dead to sin is because God hates sin and is coming to judge sin and pour out his wrath on all who practice such sins as a way of life. These unbelievers are called the sons of disobedience, which is a Jewish way of saying they are people whose lives are characterized and stamped by their disobedience. The second reason comes in verse 7. We should consider ourselves dead to sin because that was our former way of life. This was our B.C. life before Christ, right? We are new creations in Christ Jesus and our lives should be different than our old lives were when we were the sons and daughters of disobedience. But things have changed and they've changed radically and our lives should reflect this change now. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Have nothing to do with them. But now. This now in verse 8 is an eschatological now. God's plan to make all things new in Jesus Christ has already broken in and it's broken in on your life and while you formally lived that way and walked among them but now things are different but now you have a new identity but now God's promises are yours but now the power of God to say no to sin and yes to righteousness is yours But now, 
The new order with its new life has already broken in and taken hold of us. We used to live like the sons of disobedience, but now, not so much. But now things are different. Our identity and position is different, and therefore the way we live is to be different. So we're to put aside the sin that used to so characterize our lives. To put aside is to put off. To put off sin. Like you're taking off dirty clothes. And Paul lists five more sins here. The first list of five sins dealt with sexual immorality. But these sins deal with interpersonal relationships and conflicts. Anger comes first. We're to put off anger. Next comes wrath or rage, an intensive form of anger. Malice is hatred or a mean-spirited or vicious attitude toward others. Slander comes next, which is blaspheming, speaking dishonoringly or evilly of other people or of God. And finally, abusive speech is to be put off from your mouth. This is any kind of unfitting speech, dirty talk, or obscenity. Paul says, put them off. Because now, you're not who you once were. Christian, be who you are. Who are you? Colossians 3.3, the indicative. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Like an old set of dirty, worn out clothes, at the moment of our salvation, we laid aside our old self, our old way of living and thinking. And at that same moment, we've put on the new self. That's what Paul says here in verse 10. You've put on the new self who's being renewed. We laid aside the old self like an old set of dirty, worn-out rags and we put on the new self of Christ. This new life, this new self, this new set of clothes is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. According to the image of Christ who created this new self that is us, since our new self is constantly being renewed to a true knowledge in accord with the image of Christ, Paul says we shouldn't lie to one another. Another form of speech that doesn't match our new identity. And our new self this new set of clothes that we have been robed with is not to be viewed in reference to ourselves alone. For this new creation, this new era, this new you, this new self has a vital corporate dimension. As is made clear in verse 11. 
A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. There is in this new self a corporate unity and solidarity in which there is now no distinction relationally between ethnicities, cultures, education levels, or social status. No distinction between Greek and Jew, that is, between Gentile and Jew. No distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. No distinction between the barbarian or the Scythian. Barbarians were called barbarians by the Greeks. It was a pejorative because their speech sounded like bar, bar, bar. So they called them barbarians, idiots. But Scythians were worse. They came from what is modern-day southern Russia and were considered the lowest of the low among the barbarians. You might be a barbarian, but you can thank God you're not a Scythian. But with the new self has come a, a doing away with all those former categories and ways of relating to one another. With the new self has come a corporate unity that transcends all former ethnic, economic, social, education, and cultural divisions. And that is because Christ is all and in all. This, too, functions as an indicative, though it's not precisely an indicative because it provides the ground and the reason for such corporate unity. Christ is all and in all, and therefore we should treat one another with the very respect we would treat Christ himself, because Christ is in us and among us. Christ is all, which takes us back to chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and that great Christological hymn, about Christ's true identity, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he will come to have first place in everything. Christ is all. But not only that, Christ is in all. Christ in you, the hope of glory, chapter 1, verse 27. We have been spiritually united with Christ, and Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has come to indwell each of us as Christians. And this indwelling of Christ in each Christian has united us to one another and eliminated all the former things that used to divide us from one another. So how could we then lie to one another or be angry or malicious toward one another since we are one in Christ? Christian, be who you are. Live out who you are. Understand your new identity in Christ and live out that new identity in Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your new self is hidden with Christ. And Christ is all.
And Christ is in all. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christian, be who you are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, pray that we would grasp and understand just what it is you have done for us. Change has taken place in us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would better understand our new identity and position, our new power and privileges in Christ. You have not left us defenseless. You have fully equipped us to live out the life you've called us to live. Help us to reflect upon and rest in our new identity in Christ. And from that new identity, to live out the new self. To put off sin, immorality, ungodly speech, lies, greed, and idolatry of every form. Help us to do it in light of what you've done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.